Hello, Michelle Laurie here. It's no secret that Australia's property market is out of control these days, but I, for one, can't seem to stop following along. I've become a bit obsessed with it, to be honest. What's up, what's down, and who on earth is paying those prices for those houses? So I want to personally recommend a podcast for you. It's called Real Property. It'll keep you across the latest information on the Australian property market in a clear and easy-to-digest way. Real Property, building a community of more informed property buyers. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so this is a bit of a bonus episode of Can We Be Real? And last week, Michelle, you appeared on Mark Boris's podcast called Straight Talk. Now, if you don't know who Mark Boris is, he's an entrepreneur. Uh, he's the managing director of Yellow Brick Homes, and he's also got The Mentor, uh, which is his podcast network, and you sat down for a one-on-one chat with him last week. Maybe like me, you know him better as Mr. Boris. Yeah, you know, Mr. From, Boris. Yeah, what was the show? The Apprentice, The yes. Apprentice, and the Celebrity Apprentice Australia, and he was so great on that show. And um, you know, I I actually really loved the. Celebrity Apprentice America with Donald Trump, believe it or not. I really loved that show. Tim Blackwell got me into that show uh, years and years ago before Donald Trump was <laughs> the actual president, which is insane. And then so I, I was excited when the show came to Australia and I didn't know anything about Mark Bor- Boris before that. Then I saw him on that show and I was like, who's this smooth operator? And he was fantastic because he wasn't obviously flashy and crazy like Donald Trump. He was He's just a really... Um, he's really down to earth. He's really straight up. He wasn't trying to be a a crazy TV guy. It Mm -hmm. was what we noticed very early on on that TV show. And I'd never met him before. And gee, I really enjoyed our conversation. I really enjoyed meeting him so much. I have not stopped talking about him, have I? Yeah. Since we met. And what was nice as well, because I got to sit there and watch you guys doing the interview as well. And I've known you for 10 years, but there were so many things that I got Mm. to learn about you through this conversation as well that I've actually never heard before as well. So he and I both agreed that what we liked about podcasting was how much we learned about ourselves Mm -hmm. through the process of talking to other people. And, you know, in my case, it's been mostly talking to people about crime. And in his case, he's he's really tried to broaden his horizons and he's gone into lots of different spaces. So, yeah, he does talk about um, about business in one podcast, but then in another podcast he talks to lots of different people that, as he said, he would never normally get to meet and never get to sit down and talk to. But I had no idea of his background in terms of his early life, his childhood, and he actually grew up in a really tough neighborhood Mm. and we have some mutual friends because of that Mm. fascinating guy yeah it was a great chat uh michelle laurie sat down with mark boris on straight talk and here is the chat for you right now i'm mark boris and this is straight talk if you wrote this character in a book or a movie people would go too much yeah yeah pull back please welcome michelle laurie my dad thinks everything I do is stupid, yeah. and he does say that. What's stupid? I think there is a lot of disillusionment behind comedy, disillusionment with the world, and wanting to make fun of it uh, is is a weapon against it. Is that all you have to do? He's done. He's done. Career focused for so long since very early childhood on a couple of goals, and then I achieved them all, <laughs> and that was really troubling actually because I just felt like I didn't have anywhere to go after you that. Lost. You're interviewing criminals, like, why do you think people are so captivated by crime? The drama of ordinary people in extraordinary situations. I've learned so much about. I've learned a lot about myself, to be honest. I love giving people the opportunity and helping them tell their stories. I like to focus on cases that no one's really talked about and heard about because they're the people who come to us and go, can you help us get this back in the media because this person's still missing, our person's still missing? A lot of people who have missing people around Australia who think maybe they ran into Ivan. Michelle. Michelle Laurie, welcome to Straight Talk. Hello. <laughs> How are you? Me- I'm good. Michelle. Uh, I feel like there needs to be a C in there. M-E-S-C-H-E-L. I know. People always want to put a C in there. Yeah. But I like Is that it- because you're a... <laughs> a C? I don't think. I Maybe. Maybe it is. I I think the way it is is symmetrical. It feels symmetrical to me, don't you think? It kind yeah, of looks- well, it's just definitely too... 
two obvious syllables. Yeah, and um, two Michelle. But like, well, it, it, it was a Michelle at one stage in your life? Yeah, it was just a normal spelling. Boring? Boring. And also there were so many Michelles in my school and in my class. Like Michelle is one of those names that it feels like was just must have been red hot for a period of weeks in 1973 and then no one ever named their kid Michelle again after that <laughs> because when I was growing up there were so many Michelles and so at school there was Michelle L, Michelle W, Michelle Q, Michelle Y and in grade nine, which we all know is the most rebellious year of uh, usually of a child's life, yeah, I was just jack of it and I was sitting in geography one day with my friend Rachel and we were kicking around new spellings of our names because Rachel was another one, Rachel Z. Yeah, lots of Rachels around. Rachel M. And we changed the spellings of our names and we were using all these, you know, variations. She changed hers back, of course, but I didn't. You could be from Israel. You could be a Jewish name like, you know, um, Meshra Laurie. In early, it's so funny you say that, early in my career I did make up a bullshit story because I was a big Marx Brothers fan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they had this amazing story because I, I thought my story was so boring. I made up this story of this heritage of where my name had come from. I was just joking. No, but if you make it up, it's true anyway. Yeah. And that's what comedians do. You're making up stories all the time, but you're just putting a twist on it. Well, some some of us do. Some of us do. Also, I was a big Doug Anthony All-Stars fan and they used to make things up all the time and um, and people would believe them and print them and I thought that was really cool. So I, I wanted to do that. But normally I wouldn't make up a a background for myself, a heritage, a different heritage for myself. Uh, you know, I certainly wouldn't do that now because I think that. Why be, not? I think it'd be rude to my actual ancestors, and I feel very connected to my actual ancestors. Oh, really? Yes. Let's so, talk about that. Like, uh, where you're born? Which which part of Australia? Uh, to Toowoomba in yeah. Queensland. Yep. My ancestors are all very poor people, all very like farm farmers and miners. I feel like. The least I can do is acknowledge them and not make up a more exciting background or something. Is like that out that. of pride? Do you feel proud about your heritage? No, it's not pride necessarily. Disrespect. Yeah, it's respect. Just respect. Yeah. Because not many people say that. To be honest, like I've never thought about it before, actually. But I feel for poor people always, and uh, I feel like it's undignified enough and shameful enough and so I would never want them to think that however many generations in the future they might have an offspring who pretended they didn't exist or who lied about who they were. That's uh, sort of pretty gritty. Is it? I think so, yeah. I mean like farming, mining, background, it's a pretty fundamental, it's it's. It's a tough environment, but it's a pretty fundamental environment. Um, you know, like you're dragging shit out of the ground. It's either dangerous. Stuff you either eat or stuff you're going to sell off to, to somebody to turn into something else. And it's a tough, tough life. There's, there's no sort of, you know, you just got to do it repetitively. It's very repetitive. A lot of times probably be considered not that rewarding. Um, you just eke a living out of those environments largely. I mean, not too many rich farmers and not too many rich miners unless you're the No, they company. certainly weren't rich. They worked for other people. They yeah. didn't own farms. Oh, I mean as workers. That's yeah, what yeah, I mean. Yeah, they yeah. didn't own farms and they, they certainly didn't own mines. They were people who worked for other worked for rich people and so their lives weren't valued very highly by culture, by society, and um, they, they were dangerous jobs. They didn't live to very old age and they lived in squalid conditions a lot of the time. Can that give you a bit of shit on the liver though? I mean, like, I mean, I grew up in a pretty crappy environment. Um, can you get a bit of that? It depends. I, I Like you, I try not to be judgmental about people I don't know because some people um, do a lot of good for other people and just happen to oh, – I don't begrudge them, they're Bentley um, b- because some people – can do a lot of good for other people and some poor people can be pricks so and yeah, do a lot yeah. of bad to other people. So I try not to judge people simply by that, by their uh, economic situation. You know, I, I am aware and I try to make my children aware though of the realities of of life and of, of, of things like that, of capitalism I would say now, but I'm talking about ancestors who lived even before that. Um, 
and of the responsibility that you have when you have money, when you have fortune, you know, not a fortune necessarily, but when you are fortunate and um, about respecting people who are not. That's interesting because only this morning I agreed to um, write a, a character reference for somebody who's in a bit of trouble and uh, um, that individual only asked me yesterday but that individual said to me, look, this morning by text, I really appreciate you doing this and I and I owe you one. I wrote back and said, well, you don't owe me anything because I'm only speaking the truth about the character that I know and I therefore think it's appropriate that I do it. Mm. And the fact that you asked me, that's the only favour I'm doing is I'm responding to someone who asked me but I'm not doing it because I'm, I don't believe in what I'm saying. And about a half hour later I got a text back from him Oh, I've just declared as a male, so well, it's a could be male, mm-hmm. him, her, I don't know, they, it, them. they. Um, but anyway, came back to me and it said, um, "Not all rich people are uh, CUNTS. Mm-hmm. Some are decent." And then, with and I saw that, and within about three minutes or two minutes. This individual then wrote back and said, oh, that wasn't meant for you. It was meant for my sister. <laughs> it was meant about you? Yeah, yeah. Meant, yeah, boy, it, it was meant for his sister about me, yeah. Mm. And uh, and he said, I would never say that about you. Um, and I said, oh, I don't give a shit anyway, whatever. But it's funny, people do have that attitude um, that I just mentioned um, and people who grew up in crappy environments um, or less fortunate environments can tend to have a, a view first up and that's what I mean shit on your liver. And, you know, like in a few dwell on these things because I know lots of comedians and a lot of them actually are dark individuals. Mm. I won't give you any names but you you would know them for sure. What is that connection there between darkness and comedy? I think there is a lot of disillusionment behind comedy, disillusionment with the world and wanting to make fun of it uh, is is a weapon. Feel helpless against, feel, feel I can't change. Sometimes people I want to hurt. To be honest, it's certainly when you're a younger comedian, you calling in terms of calling them out, calling yeah. it out. Yeah, certainly when you're a younger comedian, I think, and you're a bit more clumsy and a bit more brutal about things. Hopefully, you grow out of it. You you learn to finesse it a bit more. But I think, yes, there is a sense of darkness and a sense of disillusionment about the world of not understanding how to how to make it work, how to work within it. Comedy can be a weapon to cut my way through it. Is that because uh, you developed at a young age or, or an understanding of your ability to put those things into words and to weaponise these things? Did you discover that about yourself? I didn't discover it that young, I think, but I discovered it in other people. I remember other kids who came from really troubled backgrounds also being really funny in primary school. Oftentimes they were the ones who were in trouble a lot, who the rest of us kids thought were hilarious so funny. And when I was in primary school, kids could still get the cuts. Little yeah. boys could still get the cane. And yeah. I remember these little boys who were so funny and the poor little things every now and then would get dragged out and would come back with these shaking little hands, red, raw and crying. And we'd all gather around them and try and console them. With the hands on a cold water. Yeah. I was one of the kids who was getting that by the Right. Way. And the rest of us loved them so much because they were our class clowns and we just, it was heartbreaking to us when they'd get the cuts. I learned from them the value of being funny, um, how, how lovable it is when you're funny and everyone wants to be loved and liked. And also they oftentimes were making fun of teachers and making fun of bullies and making fun of, you know, the things that hurt them. And uh, also now I know from working so much in the true crime space and that those kids were probably undiagnosed ADHD kids and stuff like that. Those were the kids that were generally kicked out of class, particularly young boys, um, who then fell further and further behind in their studies, who then were bullied as life went on and told they were stupid. And many of those kids end up in juvenile detention and then in prison. And sometimes they end up violent adults. This was a pattern that was very, very common up until very recently. So some of them turned out to be comedians. Some of them learned how to harness the beautiful part of their day 
making people laugh and some didn't. And it wasn't until I got into about high school that I learned how to harness that. The kids you're talking about, I don't think they were rebels. They didn't have a choice, They were classified as rebels, but they're not rebels. No, but my father was a rebel. Oh, really? Yep. Yeah. In what way? In that he never would work for anybody else. He he really sort of drummed that into us. Um, never have a boss. Um, just things he just always did weird shit. Anti authority. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Did he get in? The, did he get in the shit? No, no, he no, he just he loved that idea that he was always getting away with everything. Um, yeah, he's just a weird weird character. Um, I don't. I just don't even know where to begin, really, to describe this character. But definitely a rebel. You close to him? Were you close to him? No, sort of. Again, it's a weird one. We sort of were close, but repelled each other at the same time. So maybe more similar. I think so. I think I wanted to be, always wanted to be, and uh, yeah, because I mean, who wouldn't want to be when you're growing up with these two role models? Who would want to be mum? Poor old mum stuck there with kids and taking picking up the pieces all the time and he's just blowing in and out whenever he feels like it, no questions asked. Living the fancy Dan life, yeah. Yeah, just does whatever he wants. Um, of course I wanted to be him when I grew up. Uh, so, But then he came and lived with us for the last five years of his life and we took care of him, my kids and I, and, and my mum was there. So, you know, um, and still rebellious, still like would be, he'd have to go, he had type 2 diabetes and everything and, he'd be going in for surgery the following morning and he'd say to the doctor, oh, listen, I was thinking uh, tonight I might go out for a Chinese and I'll be back tomorrow. He's going to have open heart surgery and he's telling the doctor he's going to go out for Chinese. But that's that's funny. That's comedic and that's a character. It is a character, but he meant it. He wasn't joking. Like this is what I mean about the rebellious nature of oh, him. He was, if any, he was deadly serious. Oh, right. He, he wasn't just pit, taking the piss. No, because he was used to being the boss and he was telling this heart surgeon that he was going out for Chinese and the doctor's going, no, you can't. And we were saying, you can't. And he was so likeable, the doctor really liked him and was sort of bargaining with him and was like, just tell him you won't operate on him tomorrow if he does. Like he just had this really forceful personality. and But likeable nonetheless. Yeah, other people found it like Attractive. Yeah. Very attractive personality. Mm. I mean, I know these people. Um I'm fascinated what you see as the transition from being um, a broadcaster but, and probably more importantly the, a comedian across to being a podcaster where you're interviewing criminals. Like that transition, like how did that happen? Or Because I think, by the way, those things are closely aligned anyway. There's not too much different between them. I love giving people the opportunity and helping them tell their stories. I really find that very rewarding um, because I'm really good at it and, you know, most people aren't storytellers. Most people aren't comfortable the way you and I are right now sitting talking into a microphone. Most people get really nervous and so most people can't do what we do and so I find it really rewarding if they want to tell their story and most of them come to me for whatever reason they want to tell the story. And so I love helping them do that. And hearing that what they've lived through, it's the drama of ordinary people in extraordinary situations, you know, wondering what you would do, what would I do in that situation and hearing people say, well, this is what I did. Uh, but also I've learned so much about, I've learned a lot about myself, to be honest, and learning about relationships in my life and patterns in my own life and realising that there was some pretty negative patterns going on in my life. What are the, some of the common themes that you've picked up with the people that you've interviewed on your podcast in terms of their stories anyway? What are some of the common themes? When it comes to offenders, definitely mm. um, that they've been victimised first. Yep. And what does Russell, that mean? Well, Russell Manser is a classic example. Mm. Usually, certainly with violent offenders, somewhere quite early in their lives they have been offended against pretty egregiously, you know, sexually assaulted um, maybe violently assaulted. Maybe they've been born into really intense domestic violence and now we know that the, the effect that, that the, the domestic violence, that, that environment has on the, the development of a child's brain. The way it was described to me is when a, when a baby is born into a house of domestic violence, the way the brain is being formed, imagine a building is built and that first slab that goes down, imagine that slab is wonky. 
And so then everything that's built on top of that for the rest of the development of the brain is crooked. It can never stand straight. And, you know, learning things like that and, and learning how we as a society and a culture build violent people, traumatised people, is is fascinating yeah. to me and it also tells me how we can change it. Well, would you say it's not fair? Of course it's not fair. It's on not, them, yeah. Yeah, it's not fair on them and it's not about this people can then get upset and go, oh, I had a bad childhood and that's why I'm a crook. Well, I had a bad childhood and I'm not a crook. Well, you know, lots of things happen in our lives and some people have a positive intervention at some point and some people don't. Some people continue to have negative interventions and some people don't. You know, it's there are a lot of things that happen, but I can also see how we as a culture could spend money and push some real positivity in in the direction of families, of young families. When you've got these neighbourhoods around Australia that have generation after generation seen these same problems, seen young women falling pregnant, having children, so they're dropping out of education, they're dropping out of the workforce, they're finding themselves single mums of one, two, three kids, and there's no support for them. These are the same neighbourhoods where everyone's on Centrelink and there's no mental health support. There's no early childhood support. There's no, you know, so Centrelink knows where they are, who they are. They know the support they need, which means the government knows, you know, but they're not pushing that support into these neighbourhoods. So generation after generation, these kids are coming up with the same struggles, the same challenges. That's just not acceptable to me. Um, and we keep saying, why do we have this domestic violence problem in Australia? Why can't we fix it? That's why. That's why we keep creating young people with the same challenges and the same problems. You can make as many TV ads as you want about it, but we have to support young families in these environments. And I mean, I often think those TV ads, and I'd be interested to hear what your opinion on, but a lot of times those TV ads, as far as I'm concerned, are the um, elitist um, advertising to themselves Absolutely. and has no impact. It's sort of it gives them a pat on the back and makes them feel like they did, they're doing something, but it has no fucking outcome whatsoever. So okay, if someone who's um, a yeah. domestic violence, uh, I won't punch my wife because I've seen an well, ad. It's, it's not, not going to have any effect on whatsoever. Zero. Yeah. Um, and I think you're right. I mean, it goes right back to the, that individual's childhood and when, what they saw. I mean, it's someone like Russell, like uh, you know, like. Um, and, and and same as uh, Abbo, like you know, Graham. They they were all heavily affected when, with violence and sexual violence when they were young men, and they grow up with a pissed off for the world. They just take a jaundiced view on what's happening. Like everybody's here to take advantage, but they're doing the wrong thing. They've been informed in a million ways by the time they become teenagers that the world does not care about them. Yeah, that the rest of us in Australia, in Sydney, you know, wherever we don't care about them. We think they're trash. We we know what's happening to them because, you know, social workers come and visit them and teachers and all that shit. Everyone knows what's happening. Everyone knows that Russell is six years old, standing on a stool, cooking a meal for himself and his younger siblings every night. No one gives a shit. That's, this, this is what he knows by the time he's 12, 13. So why would we expect him to care about any of us? To his mind, this is the way the world works. Dog eat dog, mate. You do your best. Yeah. You just could take care. You're out for you. That's all you can do. And if you can get into that bloke's Porsche yep. and take it for yep. a spin for some fun, do it. This is what he's been taught. Yeah. We wonder why these But people... he has changed. Oh, mate. He, I, like listen, his he life, and I are good friends. Yeah, his life yes. has changed, as you know. He's an incredible, also an incredible example of what the world almost missed out on. Because the other thing is you meet these blokes and their intelligence level and the way they can turn their lives around and achieve so much is like, imagine how many people we've lost and missed out on. What the talent We've lost because so many people have put all of that energy and all of that brain space into surviving because that's all they've ever been taught to do. And Russell in, what is it, five years since he's been out of jail? Mm -hmm. He's built a foundation. He's helped thousands of other people. He's bought himself a beautiful property to live 
live on with his beautiful partner. He's inspirational in a lot of ways. My God. But can, but can I ask you this though, Michelle, like is there anybody who's generally just a bad bastard like, you know, Ned Smith? So No, Nettie Smith, another classic example, yeah, mate. But, 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 but he didn't change like Russell did. He didn't sort of make changes. He didn't change. I mean, even Graham Henry, like who was Ned's partner, I was like, you know, he's admittedly 72 now, but he's but he's sort of changed his life around. Like he lives a different life, whereas Ned sort of went to the end. Yeah. I don't think I've met anyone like that, put it that way. I don't think people are born bad. I really don't. I, I And I have this, this conversation with lots of people, obviously, because of the nature of the show, because we also talk to coppers, lawyers, you know, lots of people who spend their lives in this business. A lot of lawyers I know and, you know, because I was in that game, I think I had a very, a, a great, Mate, he's passed away now. He was a criminal barrister, mm. and um, I guess I can say his name. His name is Patrick Costello. He passed away like twenty years ago now. But Pat was a great criminal barrister, very good in the magi- lower courts, um, district and magistrate courts, very good attacking coppers in terms of um, his clients. You know, he he really go the coppers. He was basically hated by the cops. Him and Murphy, and um, but Pat, I used to say to Pat, mate, if you hadn't been a barrister, you would have become a, you would have been a crook, like one way or the other. You're going to go one way or the other. He would have been equally good at both. He was, but he's a great barrister. There wasn't much difference between him and uh, the the crooks that he defended. I mean, I I, may, I don't mean that in a bad way against his, you know, against his reputation. No, but no, I'm, I feel but, like but I mean that. it inside himself. You know, like a lot of things that drove him are the same things that drove the crooks. Mm. Um, and Pat had a, a a really strong belief and view on actual innocence and what's when the system's unfair. He was on the on the side of defending the people who are caught up in the system, but equally the people in the system who buck the system, who think the system's unfair, commit crimes. There's not much, that much difference between the two. Mm. Have, have you sort of seen that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Coppers as well. Yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I don't know if perhaps his his background was similar to to the guys it that you're was that we're talking. Yeah, about. yeah it was. absolutely. And he also didn't give a shit. Yeah. So you know, like a, a lot of crooks, uh, fuck it, fuck the rules. Uh, I, oh, absolutely. I, I mean, like I'm happy. I mean, the rules have been shit to me all my life. I'm happy just to sit around and live my life and just leave me alone. And Pat was like that. Uh, fuck the rules. I'll smoke a joint if I feel like smoking a joint. And I live in Byron Bay, which he did, and he, I'm going to live with two girls, which he did. Um, and I don't give a shit what anyone thinks about that. Yeah. And um, but like, about fuck the rules. Yeah. And by the way, it stopped him. It stopped him from getting up into supreme courts and appeal courts, because the system kept him down. Yeah, but he was happy there. Yeah, because that was his playground. And also, he probably did. He he liked being among the crooks. I mean, had he progressed yeah. up? Yeah, he, he did. He liked he liked their company, like being their, on the tools. Yeah, great. Their personalities, <laughs> the company. I yeah. don't know whether today he would say the same thing. If because I think the. Maybe the crimes are a bit different, and 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 it's it's just a different sort of um, milieu in terms of crime today compared yeah. to when it was when he was around twenty thirty years ago. But he did enjoy their company, and those were the days when you uh, police, barris, uh, lawyers, and crooks all consorted together. Yep, they all met at the same bar. There was a consorting squad who used to actually um, encourage talking to the police to call, talk to crooks. Yeah. This is the days of um, Roger Rogerson. Roger and all that. I was going to say, you're talking about the Dodger. Yeah. So the, the Dodger's and, day. And, 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 you know, and, yeah, they, and they knew what was going on and it made sense a little bit. Um, yeah, but they also made a lot of what was going on. So. Yeah, totally, because you, you get dragged in. <laughs> and, but it was co- complex but extremely interesting. Like extremely Definitely. interesting. Yeah. Who, who's the who would you say is the most fascinating crime? What's the most fascinating crime pod you've done? Now, what which Definitely. one really got you? You're reminding me of um, Sally Ann Huckstep. She's right. my favourite. She yeah. is just to me such a, a an incredibly brave heroine. Ironically, because she was um, definitely you know she was a, a junkie, a heroin addict, and yep. um, the Dodger was you know integral in the death of her boyfriend, Warren Land yep. Franchi, and she But he was a copper then. Uh Roger was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well yep. that's the point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was and, a copper and, then. And, and Land Franchi was a, a, a allegedly a drug dealer. Yeah, he yeah. was. And, and he got uh, cornered and got shot. He did in an alleyway. Yeah, with uh, and the Dodger was there with a couple of other coppers and they say that he pulled a gun on them. But anyway, uh Sally Ann some years later did the interview with with Ray Martin. And just laid it all out. She was the first person to to blow the whistle on Roger Rogerson. 
And of course, she ended up in a pond in in the park, Centennial Park. Centennial Park. A couple of years later, I think Nettie Nettie was was very over alibied. I seem to recall for that moment. He made sure he was surrounded by about sixty people in a pub on the other side of town, and as did Roger. They were very visible in that moment. But um, she speaking to her sister was was incredible. Their mum left the family when they were both very young girls. It was obviously very difficult for the two of them. And her sister talked about her and just as just this beautiful young woman who did ballet and all of those things that they were raised by their dad and they were very close to their dad. And then she she kind of, you know, was a rebel. And at about 14, that age we were talking about before, she stopped going to school so much and uh, started wandering around the cross, hanging out at the cross and and that's when they kind of lost and Sally They hook Ann. up with the wrong people. Yeah. Well, not the wrong people. They hook up with people who run a risky life in a system like that that exists for us. But what about the courage of this woman? Mm. I mean, yeah, she's got a very special place in my heart, Sally Ann Huckstep. Because people, I remember that night on 60 Minutes, I was a very small child and my mum loved that show so much. And I remember her talking about this prostitute. Oh, how could you believe her? How could you believe her, you know, talking about? Because at that stage Roger Rogerson was winning medals, awards for bravery and, you know, his incredible work and he was look, being looked at for the commissionership. And so, yeah, the courage of her, amazing. But it's funny when you talk about someone like when, when, when people talk about Roger, not just you, but when, when you think about Roger Rogerson, Roger's um, personality actually made him a very good cop too because the only difference is he was choosing who he was going to stop and arrest yeah. and who he wouldn't stop and arrest. You have to be a great cop yeah. to be a, as corrupt as he was, I believe. You know, you have to still be doing a really good job to get away with, you know, what he was getting away with. And and people often tell me there's so much more that he got away. He was that good, someone told me recently. He was that good at what he was doing that you'll never know. And, and but But do you think that he might have been given the green light to do that because let's say he put for every 10 he put away, he might have had to compromise with one and therefore just on a numbers game, it's better to put 10 away and, and have to favour one, which might have been Nettie, um, and, um, and, but I got 10 others off the, off the t- 10 others out, out of the system, which sort of overall in a majority sense it was better, do you think? Because you'd have to ask yourself the question going back, then, or maybe if he couldn't befriend, say, someone like Ned and get away with all the things that Roger was getting away with, breaking the rules internally, he might not have got the other ten. Um, well, he wasn't just which, breaking the rules internally. He was dealing drugs around Australia. I get it. No, went, uh, <laughs> no, no, but it went, it went beyond. He, he took it too far, obviously. Yeah. But in the early stages, I mean, let's assume, I mean, we see these movies on television where you know, they break guys out of prison and the guy then is, the CIA gets control of the guy and the guy goes out to do it for the greater good. I mean, do you think that... There is something in that, and because I mean, Roger grew up in Bankstown where I grew up, and uh, actually I, I knew him quite well. And uh, he's a couple of years older than me, but I, I knew him because he actually had a, a business on the side. He used to put bars on people's windows. He had like a, a metalworking business. He had lots of different businesses on the side, and uh, he sort of basically come from the same background as me. And uh, and he quite an intelligent guy. Definitely very intelligent. Very captivating to talk to. A psychopath is what you're describing. Potentially a psychopath, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know if they, you've got to pass those, I think it's 17 tests or something, 17 questions in the psychopath yeah, test. I, I'd be happy to, to, to look at that because genuinely. But I, I think mean, a lot of people are psychopaths. What? A lot of people are psychopaths. Oh, well, I'm sure they are, but I think. The he, President he, of the United States was probably a psychopath. Yeah, Trump but I think was. Roger Rogerson was a violent psychopath. I mean, genuinely, uh, everything you're saying, you know, charming, incredibly intelligent. Yeah. Um, thought he was better than ego, definitely had an ego. Um, Why is that less forgivable than, say... I'm not saying he's not... Well, I'm because saying he, who knows, violent psychopaths unforgivable. What about if we looked at his background, then? Like, if we, I mean, if we went back and looked, I'll bet you any money, something similar to what you're talking about, what, what you're talking about with Russell, maybe not sexual or whatever, but something's happened maybe. in the foundations. Yeah, the the yeah, slants yeah, yeah. Some, Something's gone wrong. Maybe, maybe yeah. you're right. Yeah, because I, I would like to know about that. Because yeah. I, I, what I do know is that, yeah, absolutely, he had a position of power, of great power, of great social respectability, and he abused that position to murder people, to commit crimes, and very nearly got away with it. I mean, 
he could, the murder he's in prison for now. The Asian kid? Absolutely. Jamie Gao mm. is the Asian kid's name yep. and yep. was the Asian kid's name. I mean, extraordinary to be a man of his age and still getting around doing drug deals and to, to murder a young man and try and dump his body at sea. I mean, just an extraordinary uh, individual, Roger Rogerson. Why do you think people are so captivated by crime? I mean, your listeners are talking about audiences. What, what is it that? Well, Roger Rogerson is a classic example. Why, are we, a, why are we captivated? What well, a character, for yeah. want of a better word. Yeah, yeah. That's you couldn't good. write, if you wrote this character in a book or a movie, people would go, too much. Yeah, yeah. Pull back. That's ridiculous. That's it can't not be real. True. It's a real person. You know better than anyone. He's, he's a, he was a character. Like, uh, I'll never forget once that um, I was married um, um, to my second wife and she was quite young relative to she was 10 years younger than me. I was 30, she was 20. And um, I was travelling a lot in those days and uh, I thought I'd better get some security in my place and uh, blah, 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 you know, all that sort of stuff. So I rang Roger up and I said, mate, he was in the police at the time. Um, He was a superintendent and I said, um, I want to get some security in my place. What do you recommend? In those days, the cops allowed to do these sorts of jobs on the side. Not these days, they can't. And he brought another bloke along with him who was a good friend of mine, guy, another copper called Nelson Chad. Nelson was a super as well. And uh, they looked around my place. I was living in a, a like a townhouse. I looked around and said, well, you need some bars on the windows here and all sorts of stuff. I said, okay, well, get, get a quote, got a quote. I said, get to come and, come and install it. Anyway, I was about to go overseas and uh, the day they're coming to install it, Roger came in, must have been his day off for shift, comes in with a team of two or three blokes, all the stuff, and my wife at the time walked out and I said, well, look, to her, I said, look, these guys are going to do this job. I've been already been telling about it, like just to make sure you feel safe while I'm away and all that stuff because she was pregnant at the time. And that morning on the front page of the newspaper was a photo of Roger. And I used to get in those days I got the papers delivered to my home and uh, I hadn't looked at the paper and uh, I was – because I was talking to everyone, I was running late, I went to work, came back and uh, as I walked in the house, they'd done their work and uh, it was nighttime I came, I came home and there's the newspaper sitting on the dining room table, front page. She said, this is the guy. Oh, no. They're just uh, – and it was – I don't remember what the inquiry was about. I, I think it might have been around, about Warren Land Franchi at that time. It was in the 80s. So it would have been 86, 1986. I don't know when – I don't know. You probably Yeah, that idea. sounds right. Yeah. yeah. That was, was a about 1986. And uh, mm. 1986-87 it was and when I did that – and, uh, of course, I had a lot of explaining to do because she came from a real proper school in uh, Upper North Shore, <laughs> private college, ladies' college, all that sort of stuff, and the parents were real proper people and all that sort of stuff. I had a fair bit of trying to explain. Look, I know him from when I was growing up, blah, blah, blah. It's all good. No drama, but we feel, we should feel safe. And – but she said, oh, he was a really nice guy. He charmed the pants off her. Like she was, she said, oh, I actually couldn't believe this when I saw it because he made me feel quite safe and he's a policeman. Well, he's a policeman, I suppose, but, theor- but, but theoretically. His, his conversation to her. Yeah. And uh, and you wonder where these guys, you know, like at that stage, who knows what stage he was at, but you wonder where they fell off the rails, you know. I'd love you to get someone like him. You're not going to get him, but maybe you could do a podcast in jail. I've spoken to many uh, corrupt coppers, to be honest, older corrupt coppers off the record mostly, or they, they've not wanted to speak too much about those, those issues. Um, and, Certainly I've, I've asked a lot of people about why it is that drug squads in particular seem to be so prone to corruption and it seems to be generation after generation. There'll be, And they've said, look, that, that thing that you've talked about today, which is that, you know, a lot of these, a lot of criminals and certainly drug dealers are really nice, like fun guys. Like they're really. <laughs> well, because they don't see there's any, they don't think that society's norms That's uh, right. have any, have any real substance. They're saying. They're rebels. Could, they're... Could, but, but, but they're also saying, well. How can I come back and drink alcohol and smoke cigarettes but I can't take that drug? Absolutely. They just can't understand that there is a boundary. Yeah. But they're trying to think out why is there a boundary. And so when you're on the drug squad, you end up consorting still really with these guys. So you go to the casino and there is so-and-so and 
And he says, G'day, Mr. Boris, how are you tonight? It's nice to see you. Buy a Do drink. you want a drink? Yeah. Let's chat. And so you go, Oh, g'day. And you have a chat. What's going on? Who's out and about? And you spend time with this guy and you go, God, you know what? He's, I know he's a, but he's funny. He's a great guy. Plus, I get information from him. Yeah, I'm getting a bit of information. And then you're seeing his lifestyle. It's great. This guy's living a great life. You're on a police, you know. Yeah, I'm getting my shit money every week. Yeah, right? I'm taking all the risk. Plus then they'll come up with these crazy schemes where they go, oh, righto, let's let's us sell them the stuff to make meth and then that's how we'll infiltrate. So suddenly there's a bit of a. The lines get blurred. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a blurry world and sometimes people get on the. So would you say there, there, should, would you say there shouldn't be any blame? I mean, I'm what? a bit funny that way. I do get a bit funny. I say sometimes to the old coppers, but like they don't, they're not following any rules. If you get the job done, shouldn't you be allowed to just get the job done, you know? And they'll sort of say no. Well, some coppers will say to me, no, no, you can't blur those lines because once you blur it, there's no end. There's no end. Then where do we draw the line if we say to a detective, all right, yeah, just do whatever you have to do. Like remember the, the Melbourne gang wars. I mean, people were getting shot dead at, at kids' football games. It was desperate. The city was desperate for this to end. So, yeah, they pulled some freaky shit and they got, you know, a lawyer involved as a... The female lawyer. As an informant, yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely, Nicola Gobbo. Part of me that can see the desperation that they were like, do anything. This has to stop. We can't have, they're not just shooting each other anymore in gyms, in biking, <laughs> you know, gyms. We can't have this happening. We've just got to stop it any way we can. But the old coppers go, no, mate, because then where does it end? You know? Well, well, well it's sort of a pretty interesting conversation, to be honest with you, like uh, from my mm. point of view anyway. Um well, then, Crime what, then and punishment what? is a big issue. Yeah. I mean, it's a very interesting issue. Like it's a broad, complex, deep, very deep uh, discussion. It's not just you did the fucking crime, you're going to jail. But what if we can't get you on that crime? Do we then just go around and plant something on you? Yeah, that's 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 just what I'm to saying. get you in jail. You know, because we this know is you it. did it, right? We know you did that one, and the judge was an asshole, or something happened with the jury, so it didn't happen. So. But, but we're going to get you next time. We've got to get you on something. We want you off the street. Like, well, where, where's where, the line? Where, where, where do you sit on this stuff? I mean, do you think it's better? Do you th do you look back and sit back and say, in a society sense, it's better that um, we stop this because there's a danger to society, and therefore it's better that we, the police or the or the system, stops this person no matter what, gets them somehow, or do you think that? Uh, yeah, that's unfair and that we should be making judgments on these people and that we should perhaps legalise drugs and, 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 and take that sort of mystique away from the drugs and all that sort of black money and everything that sits with them, making them very attractive and legalise drugs and just say, okay, we just took that away from you, took that playground away from you. You're not allowed to play in that playground anymore. Go do something else. Rob I do. Banks. I do think that. In that case, I do. I do. I think that drugs, I think it's a, that's a health issue and we're treating it as, as a crime. As a crime issue. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think addiction is a health issue and I think that, you know, when you're addicted to something, you're you're treating a problem. I think yeah. people, you know. There's people something are, wrong with me. That's what I'm doing. People are medicating doing. something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Let's let's treat that. But yeah, because there's no difference between Valium I get from my doctor to medicate me for whatever my stress or anxiety might be yeah. or fentanyl I might be taking because I'm also trying to put myself in the same place That's that Darling puts me just as a lot more lethal and uh and it's but it's cheaper and it's more more readily accessible but it's also more dangerous. I mean, do you think we as a society then need to have these things as crimes to to protect people from themselves as opposed to taking the criminals out? No, I think I think we need to we need to protect people from themselves if that's How do we do it then without making it a crime? We need to spend a lot of money on healthcare. Yeah, really unpopular idea and yeah. really expensive idea. And but yeah, we need to have f facilities and healthcare professionals. You know, that's what we need to do. We need to be saying, "Here's a bed for three months, and here's the counselling, and let's get to it. Let's get to the bottom of it. Let's get to what is actually happening with you." Can you imagine how many. How many less criminals we would have if there was drugs were not a crime in Australia? Well, absolutely. And as I was saying before, because most of our violent offenders have been victimised initially, if we took better care of victims, it seems to me 
that we would end up with less violent offenders and less offenders in general. So if we took better care of people at when they were victimised at first, if we supported them, held them up, we should be able to then stop that cycle where they end up uh, violent offenders. Yeah, that's just, it's, you, you have, I mean, you're nearly a criminologist given the fact that you're doing crime podcasts. I mean, you be, you be, because you're studying crime. Or more importantly, you're studying what's behind crime. Well, I'm fascinated by it. Yeah, it's not it's not just a matter of kind of sitting and listening to people's stories. What I've found, it's been seven years now, and the patterns just they just keep coming up again yeah. and again and again. And so then I have to go, okay, hang on. Whoa, I need to talk. So I need someone to explain this to me. This keeps coming up. Why? What does this mean? And so yeah, we ended up talking to academics, to doctors, to people, researchers to explain what's happening here. And it's fascinating. Yeah, the, the research, it's it's fascinating. What what do you what, what do you say is the difference between and Russell's a great example, but what do you what is the difference between someone like him who can what is the thing that makes someone like him turn their life around? I know he did twenty four years in jail over, over a long period of time in, for different crimes, but how is someone like him able to turn himself around and others can't? I mean, what do you think I mean, you know? Well he told you himself, most. I'm sure he did, you know, that it was that for him it was the Royal Commission into institutional uh what is it, not reactions to sexual um, assaults of children, whatever the big long name of it is for the Royal Commission. So he heard, he read in the newspaper they're having this Royal Commission and he thought to himself, I'm going to tell him. I'm going to tell him. He made this decision that he was going to talk about what had happened to him as a child in the boys' homes and in, in jail uh, because he was sent to jail when he was still a juvenile. Um, that was the turning point for him. And then he talks about the first day this lawyer came into jail because then he went back to jail after reading that in the paper. But even that, because I remember asking him, hang on, hang on, why did you go back to jail? Because when he read this in the paper, he was straight and clean and had a job and all that. Then he goes, oh, and then the next thing I was back in jail and this lawyer came in. I said, whoa, 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 why were you back in jail? Oh, because I started using again after I read that in the paper. And that to me, and then when he started using, he had to do um, robberies to make money to use. That to me was so clear and obvious. The trauma of thinking about telling people, uh, just so horrible, so awful. And he said, yes, I started getting the nightmares again. I started getting all of these symptoms again. And so he had to start treating himself again, medicating himself again with the heroin. And then he had to start committing the crimes again to get the heroin. So that's the cycle that you're up against. Do you think it's almost for him and, and maybe a lot of others too, it's almost cathartic. Like it's nearly nearly in a, a, a Shakespearean sense or even going you know, beyond that, like, a, you know, in, in Homeric sort of sense, it's nearly cathartic for these guys to be able to talk about it. Absolutely. And he said, he was called, they said, you know, Mansa, there's a lawyer here to see you. He goes in there thinking, oh, are they going to nick me for something else? What is it? What is it? He goes into the room. This lady is in there. She's from the Royal Commission. She said to him, I'm from the Royal Commission. I want to hear your story and I want to help you. And that was life-changing. It was the first time anyone had believed him that, was life-changing. Someone believed him and offered him help because so many of these people did try to tell someone or, as we were saying earlier, people knew what was happening to them and they did nothing. They just left them in it. So that's devastating. And here he was, a grown man of 40, late 40s, early 50s, and someone came to him and said, I know what happened, I believe you, and I want to help you. Do you think society, most, not most of us, probably not you and me, but a large percentage of a society just pretends this stuff doesn't exist yeah. and they just get on with their life and they actually don't want to know about it. So is your show about making these people aware of it or is your show talking to the aware audience, already the aware audience? I mean, no, what, where do you want to take it? It's definitely, we've definitely all grown together, I think, the, a lot of the audience, but we have new audience coming all the time. So it's definitely about learning stuff but, and not just about, it's not about learning about other people's lives. As I said, I've learned a lot about my own life through it. We've learned a lot about domestic violence, about female perpetrators of domestic violence, um, but also about symptoms of, of domestic violence, about women 
realising they're victims of domestic violence, which sounds crazy. You would think you would be well aware, but a lot of us aren't. A lot of us don't realise we're in violent relationships. Yeah, I didn't realise that was a, a, a domestic a DV. I know. You, you might, because people might think that. I know. People, women think it all the time. And men, absolutely men think it. Absolutely men think they can't be in violent relationships. They don't realise they can be victims of domestic violence. So, they also probably realise, don't think that they are being violent. I mean, they, yeah. they probably don't think this is a, 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 a an act of violence. Yeah, absolutely. It's my right. I'm not in my right. They just probably don't think about it. It's just something I saw when I was a kid. I'm doing the same thing. Yeah, I shoved her into a cabinet. Yeah, Big fizz. Yeah, yeah. She's being a bitch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know? <laughs> and, and women. I I'm saying that. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And, and the women go, oh, yeah, well, I was probably being a bitch anyway, so I cop totally. the sweet. Totally. Um, women, you know, oh, I slapped him. I slap him sometimes. He's been an asshole. You know? I mean, no. <laughs> and And certainly these are the things that we've talked about and we talk about the escalation of this. I mean, coercive control is just it's such a new term that we're all just trying to get our heads around what that means, what constitutes coercive control. So, yeah, we're all just learning a lot all the time on this show. So do you think it's better? It's better for us? Or that, uh, I mean, do you think it's better for our advancement that we learn these things or is it better that we, we never ever found out about them in the first place? <laughs> it's definitely better. <laughs> it's definitely better because we were all it was all it was happening to us. Yeah. All the time. A lot of us grew up in these environments yeah. and just no one talked about them. You know? Kids came to school and with no lunch and no shoes and with the bruises and no one cared. No teacher pulled certainly at my school, no teacher pulled them aside. No one asked them if they're okay. No. Any chance you get to see Folby? I don't know, but I am very close to a person who's a mentor of mine who was one of the first uh, pathologists who came in to re-examine the evidence in her case. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've been sort of reading and watching a lot of the material about her case over the last five or seven years or something. How does it, I mean, has, has echoes of Linda Chamberlain? To be honest, like the, absolutely. I mean, like she's guilty. Mm. I don't know how I look at her because the way she's acting. Yeah, I, there's something weird about her. Uh, like, but of course, she got a pardon. She hasn't been uh, had a conviction quashed, which she's probably going to go and seek. Mm. But she got a pardon. Um, Linda Chamberlain, like from the day one, everyone said she was guilty because they didn't like the way she looked. Um, I, again, I remember my mum. I was seven or eight, saying, "She's weird. She doesn't cry. She's a weird religion too." Yeah, all of that stuff. And, 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 and yeah, and in relation to Folby, her husband's still maintaining that she's the one. Um, and it's, for me, I find it quite confusing. In fact, a little bit confronting because I can't sort of get my head around it. Like I find anything I can't get my head around confronting. So that means there's lots of things I get conf- um, <laughs> get confronted by. But it, 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 I just can't understand if her husband's so dead set uh, convinced and I, and I and that she did it. And I think probably... What I take out of this is that the pardon basically means, and probably if she gets a conviction quashed, probably means that you can't give her a criminal conviction because there is sufficient doubt. Yeah. Given what the scientists have been able to come up with. Yeah. That the burden of proof has not been proven by the prosecution. Mm. No, that doesn't mean she didn't do it. It doesn't mean anything. It just means... Well, there's no uh, evidence. There's actually no evidence at all that she did kill any of the babies. That, that might be right too because it's all circumstantial as far as I'm aware. But but it doesn't mean she did or she didn't because none of us will ever know, only she knows. Mm. Um, but the point being is that you can't convict someone beyond all reasonable doubt. You've got to, to get, to get yeah. a, cr- a conviction, you've got to, it's got to be beyond all reasonable doubt. Yeah. And there's enough scientific evidence there yeah. to say... Doesn't say she didn't do it, but she said there's plenty of doubt whether she did it. Absolutely, and that's enough. Yeah, and the fact is that she was only really convicted the first time on the vibe, and I know that's an Australian joke, but it it really and truly is um, because she was tried for all four deaths at once. Uh, the The fourth death was was not suspicious at all. the The fourth child had a heart condition, a congenital heart condition, and so it was basically. The idea that oh well, but because the previous three babies died, she must have killed it. It was really the vibe. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so this man that I was talking about, Dr. Stephen Cordner, Professor Stephen Cordner from the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine, who should be retired, but people just keep asking him to do things because he's a rock star. Um, 
he was called in a couple of years ago and they asked him to re to relook at the um, evidence and to, they ran some tests on the slides and things that they still had and he was the person who said, well, look, the fourth child had this um, this issue, this myocarditis. I think the second child did as well. And so there's lots of doubt. Um, had had she been tried individually for the four cases, there's no way that she would have been convicted, convicted for the fourth, probably not the second. And then the other two, th- there's actually no physical evidence at all um, in any of the cases and there's no witness evidence. And then there's the diary, the diary entries that they had a, an expert, the prosecution had an expert say, see, that's obviously saying that she's killed her children. The defence had another expert saying, well, no, it looks like a traumatised woman who's terrified of her children dying. And it's one of those examples where, again, if you wrote this story, people would go, well, that's a ridiculous storyline. But actually there are cases around the world and there's a case in Melbourne of a family that lost, I think, five children to um, strange circumstances under the age of four and five. Like it happens. It happens. It can happen. Do you reckon you would get... Bruce Lerman in? That one's no. Or Brittany? The answer is no. Or either him or her? No, the answer is no. That's a really troubling case and obviously it's been handled very badly by lots of people. And also... I find I, it quite confusing to be honest. Me too. I mean, I don't know what's what's going on. Me neither. Me neither. And also, like, we just don't... I like to focus on cases that no one's really talked about and heard about because... They're the people who come to us and go, can you help us get this back in the media because this person's still missing, our person's still missing, or we really want an inquest, we're struggling to get an inquest, or we have a foundation in our person's name, or, um, yeah, we, we just like to work with families and help people that way. So, like, I'm not going to talk about Ivan Malat again, <laughs> you know, usually, unless uh, there's a lot of... A lot of people who have missing people around Australia who think maybe they ran into Ivan on his travels, unfortunately. But, yeah, we, we, we try and talk about other things. There's a lot of things to talk about. The, my thing at the moment that I'm looking into is it's this really awful. Sorry, this is a real downer. Do you mind? No, no, go for it. Uh, people in Australia who are looking literally themselves on their hands and knees with their own hands for the remains of their relatives because... Wow. The police have given up the look, the search, and they think they kind of know where they are and, yeah, no one else is looking for them. You mean is that a resource issue or like it's just we've given up, it's too hard? Yeah, I think a bit of both. I think, and that's, again, fair enough. Police have, a, you know, new cases every day. Yeah. And I think that it comes to a point, yeah, where they might go, I don't know, there's 300 mine shafts out there or whatever the case may be, or there's this huge national park. Or a big ocean. Yeah. We we don't know. I'm sorry, we've run out of time and resources. And so, of course, family members aren't ever going to say that to themselves. So there are a number of families I know of who are just out there every weekend, still got jobs, on their hands and knees trying to find their person's remains. You said to me right at the very beginning, and I'm going to finish off on this part, but I, but I wouldn't mind if you just... You know, help me out a bit here. Your show is about letting other people tell their story and you sort of help draw it out of them but mm. you become the bridge to the audience. Where are you at today? I mean, who are you? That's a really good question. I, I, It's changed. It's definitely changed over the last couple of years. I think a lot of people's have, haven't they? But I was so ambitious and work-driven and career-focused for so long since very early childhood, very much very focused on a couple of um, goals and then I achieved them all (laughs) Uh, in, I don't know, probably by early 40s and that was really troubling actually. Because I just felt like I didn't have anywhere to go after you get that. Lost. Mm. Yeah. So since then, it's been a real process of trying to figure out what what to do after that, and trying to find a passion again. 
Uh, so, yeah, I think I'm still still kind of trying to do that in a way. And and it felt like every time I nominated a passion, it was thwarted in one way or another. I'd have to go, okay, no, it's not that. Can't be that. But is it because you're looking at making change or you're trying to be excited by whatever the passion project yeah. is? And, I, and I've, I've had things that I've been excited by but for one reason or another. I went really seriously into humanitarianism. I worked for Save the Children for a couple of years and loved it, not as an ambassador but actually in, in the office in, in Melbourne and I loved it so much. It's such a great organisation. Um, but then COVID came along and that kind of, you know, changed everything for humanitarian organisations around the world. Um, and I'd just gone back to uni at that stage to get a master's in communications because I thought, okay, I want to be a communications person for SAVE or for one of those big organisations. So, and then out of that grew more podcasting because it was a great job I could do from home and all of that. So I feel like I'm still kind of, um, post, post that, uh, so yeah, I'm not sure, but now I'm I'm a little bit more relaxed about things. I'll I'll say that it, COVID has certainly put me in a much more relaxed place where I'm more happy to float along and see what happens. I've come to terms with not having a goal, not having a place that I get up and marching towards every day for the first time in my life. And does that do you feel more happy, more replete in that regard? No, I think I'm much more happy when I've got a goal that I'm marching towards every day. Yeah, because is that though because you're just comfortable, you have been comfortable for, you know, 40-odd years being that person? Yeah. So do you feel uncomfortable about making change or accepting change As because as we get older things do change, accepting change? No, I'm actually very, I'm, I'm super resilient. I'm really, really good with change. I'm really good at accepting it saying okay this is where we're at now we'll go from this point but it's the um I feel really loose and kind of unbound I'm untethered uh you know like I'm used to climbing a mountain and I've got my rope up the top of the mountain and I'm climbing it and some days it's hard and you're gonna stick your flag in the top yeah uh but no I'm not really tethered to the top of a mountain at the moment so I'm just kind of wandering around which as I say for a while was just horrible, very depressing for a couple of years. But now I've settled into it and I'm a bit more, a bit more, I'm probably much better Buddhist actually. I'm much, much better at just uh, being in the moment, seeing where the day takes me. I'm much better at doing nothing. I've never been very good at doing nothing before, but now I'm I'm, uh, able to do that. It's important to be able to do nothing. It is. And I've always been very, very bad at it. I I go away and stay with some monks sometimes in Bendigo and um, just to force myself to do nothing because they're in bed at six. <laughs> so and then I'm yeah. just. <laughs> so they're up at three or four too. Yeah, yeah. So 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 you 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 think that you're at a stage of um, accepting that you don't have to be in control. Yes. That's a pretty important thing. It is. Yes, I think I'm. I'm getting much better at. I'm getting better at. Uh, just kind of floating around, wafting around the world, just, yeah, just on the planet. Yeah, just being. Yeah. That's a pretty cool thing. That's close to, not that I know, but you're getting close, you're getting closer. You're not there because we never get there, but you're getting closer to enlightenment. You're getting close. You know what I mean? Like if, uh, and I think that for me anyway, and I think you mentioned this earlier, I'm doing podcasts, you learn a lot about yourself. Yes. And, And the thing I find with, particularly with offenders is they're not different. Yeah. <laughs> they're not different to me. And they're not bad. No, they're not very different to me or yeah. to, you know, uh, there's the, that idea that they're bad people, they're monsters or they're, you know. No, I feel like I, I maybe could have been an offender if, I don't know, something had happened or, or you know, yeah, people are people. And probably from now on I'm going to be a Michelle Laurie podcast listener. That's so fun. You should try the new one. Can we be real? Yeah, go for it. It's, it's, that's just like just being real. Just talk. It's fun. It's funny. And it's just like just being real about anything, you know, because I feel these days a lot of younger broadcasters and comedians, they're really scared of backlash. They're really scared of social media. They're always second guessing themselves. Can I say that? Yeah. 
then they'll say this about me, they'll say that. And I'm like, hey, Where are the guardrails? Oh, my God. Oh, God, right? I'm like, mate, just be real. It's fine. And be real about your vulnerability. That's the best way, yeah. I always think. If you don't know something, say you don't. If you make a mistake, apologise. If, you know, or whatever, just be real. Can we just be real? Yeah. I guess what bothers me the most is on one hand they're telling us all to be authentic mm. on social media, be yourself and all that sort of stuff. But on the other hand they're saying, but there's some guardrails. Yeah. And here are the guardrails. And if you break the rules, we're going to cancel you. Or or you're going to totally. get hit up by, you know, all these people going to come at you really hard. Like i got some dude keeps coming at me, you know, and I, th- I thought I- I'm going to block him. Then I thought, no, fuck it. I don't care. I don't want him to think that I give a shit anyway. Totally. But, yeah, I mean, look, put it this way. I but I feel to, like sometimes clipping him too, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like I go through all these emotions and I think, what the fuck am I even worried about? I, I don't give a shit. Like, they, people keep accusing me of being like everything from racist to transphobic and um, and homophobic and I'm like, mate, I was protesting in the street before you were fucking born. Yeah. I was protesting de- black deaths in custody. I was protesting, um, you know, a gay gay guys were beaten to death on their way home from a nightclub I used to hang out at when I was 17. We hit the streets. I was hanging out in the toilets with transgender women who taught me how to do my hair and makeup, which I still do it the way they taught me in the Dunnies at Options in Spring Hill in Brisbane. You know, like, fuck off. Yeah. When you're accusing me of being transphobic and racist, you're wasting your time and your energy. We have actual enemies in the world. Like we, you know, in America, they're they're banning drag in the certain states, and like use your energy and your power against actual foes. Let's just be real and have the conversations that we have at home, and not be, feel like we have to be. Oh God, what are your pronouns? Oh fuck off. Yeah, I know it's killing me, Michelle. <laughs> Thank you. Good to see you. <laughs> 